Welcome back to another episode of the Startup Therapy Podcast. This is Ryan Rutan, joined as always by my friend, the founder and CEO of Startups.com, Will Schroeder. Will, there's this age-old debate. Actually, it's not really that old. Uh, it's a relatively new debate, but in the startup land, it's the raging debate around the value of a bootstrapped startup versus one that's venture-funded, with the conventional wisdom being that, well, of course, venture-funded startups are worth more because they've just taken on bucket loads of cash from VC. But I think we might have a slightly different perspective on that and at least share some balance to that argument. What do you say? I think that it's it's hilarious that we're doing this episode now because we are in what like Q two three of twenty twenty three. And yep. I always say that because people you know watch these things like a couple of years later and they're like, what are they talking about? The markets are are, are amazing. And <laughs> yep. as of this moment, the markets are less than amazing. <laughs> Put it mildly, there are 400 Series D, call it like unicorn level startups that have not been funded in two years. I want to just point out how insane that is. You got to understand the whole point of all, all of us as we're growing something, but particularly venture funded companies, the whole point of doing everything that we do for venture funding is to get to an IPO. So that means 400 companies that were on an IPO track, and there aren't that many companies that even get to an IPO track to begin with. 400 have not seen a penny in two years or more, at least two years. That is a hell of a big herd of hungry unicorns that are just kind of yeah. meandering around <laughs> at this point. it's getting worse. Yep. It's getting worse. And the only reason I wanted to start off with that stat, that moment in time, is because two years ago, you would have wanted to be them. You'd be like, oh my God, billion dollar valuation. They've got gobs, money, et cetera. I know those guys. Some of them are our listeners to the show here. They are going through the hardest time anybody could possibly go through right now. If you think you're struggling with $250,000 in the bank, what if you had 100 million in payroll? Yeah. <laughs> you're trying to figure out how to cover that. Yeah. Right now, that Ugly is a whole situation. other level. And the reason, again, I'm bringing this up is because we tend to fantasize about what venture-funded startups look like or getting all the cash and things like that. What we don't often realize is the value we attach to these companies, number one, also often never materializes, but number two isn't what we think it is. And more importantly, this is what we'll talk about, who is it valuable to? How much of this value that's being created is valuable to the actual founder? It's a lot less than you think. So our bootstrap counterparts, which are like, we'll talk about like 99% of everybody else, are a little bit more valuable than you think, but they're a hell of a lot more valuable right now because a lot of them are still around. So let's start there. Ryan, when we talk about startups that are being funded versus bootstrapped, in your mind, how do people tend to think about not being funded? How do they think of themselves? Let's start there. Yeah, sure. I, you know, I think it depends a lot on, on the founder. Let's go with the first time founder building a tech product who's doing the typical thing, which is to benchmark against a bunch of other venture funded companies, right? So they're, they're immediately right. drawing that comparison. They're looking at other people in the market. They're specifically looking at venture companies and they're saying, I have to do this too. I need to be this. Right. I'm not going to be successful until I look like that. Right. And so they're, they're drawing that comparison right from the beginning and that changes a ton of decision making. Right. And so they are feeling bad that they're not funded. They're feeling like I have to do something to get funded. They're, they're changing their decision making patterns to lead to the types of traction that would be prime for funding, not necessarily right. great for the business, but things that exactly. would make me fundable, right? So it's a really, really scary trap that you can fall into at the earliest stages of your business. Let's start use like hard numbers because I think sure. this is going to shock a lot of people. There are only about a thousand companies each year yep. that get a first-time venture capital check. 
a thousand companies. Now, there's 4,000 checks that get written, but a lot of those are follow-on deals, yep. right? So, you know, they did the Series A and now they're funding the Series B. And the number goes up and down a little bit. Now it's like zero. But the bigger point is, if we were to step back and say, well, only the venture-funded companies are worth something, I'm going to first say to you, nah, you know, that's like less than 0.0001% of companies are venture funded. And if those are the only valuable ones, you'd never go to a restaurant. You'd, you'd never <laughs> go to like a million other businesses, yep. right? We had this wildly myopic view, particularly in startups in the tech industry, that if it's not venture funded, it's not relevant. All of my neighbors happen to be business owners, right? Not like wildly successful business owners, yeah. but business owners and live in beautiful homes and have amazing lives and don't even know what venture capital is. Yep. So before we like sit around and be like, oh my God, I, I guess if I'm not venture funded, I can't make it. All my neighbors would disagree with you. <laughs> like they, they see things quite a bit differently and most of the world does. So I think we should just kind of dig into how few people are even in that world before we benchmark everything against them. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I, it's, it's again, it's like when we're setting our sights on something, are we picking the right target? Right. And I think that one of the things we'll say there's like, well, okay, but sure, most companies aren't venture funded, but they're also not successful. Well, bullshit, right? To your neighborhood, to the guy who lived across the street from me in St. Pete with the $16 million house who sold what? Nothing actually. He rented fences. <laughs> Didn't know that was a thing. Talked right, to him right, once right. about if, if he had ever taken on investment capital and he his response was, I shit you not. Yeah, I bought stocks once. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what it is. I, I was like, okay, cool. I, it told me everything I needed to know. Right. And look, not, not a not smart person. This guy built a wonderful business and, and was cash flowing like crazy, but had no idea what venture funding was and is obviously a successful business. Right. Thing was an ATM just puking cash into buckets that he filled his pockets with every month. So I think it goes back to when we say, well, you know, the successful companies, right? The ones who IPO'd. Well, look at how some of those have turned out. How many IPO'd companies are now trading at pennies on the dollar or in that no person's land right before IPO, that 400 right. herd unicorn that we've got, uh, 400 yeah. unicorn in, herd in that we've got. Yeah, right? So how successful is that, right? They were on a path to a particular type of success, but, and we're going to touch on this later, so I don't want to, I don't want to steal the thunder yet, but like, who was that success for, right? right. In this case- guy that lived across the street from me with a $16 million house right on the water, that success was all theirs. All theirs, right. right? There was no question about who kept that money. Sarah, my wife, my family, and I used to live in Beverly Hills. And what I could never figure out about living there is how anybody could afford to live there, yeah. right? Because like, like every single house was crazy expensive. And I'm like, there's no way you could have an entire neighborhoods. And then Bel Air was adjacent right. to another neighborhood of all these crazy expensive houses. And so we got to meet these people, right? None of them ever heard of venture capital, right? <laughs> I'm trying to point out that like, as much as we want to attach, I'm not successful or I'm not valuable if I don't raise venture capital. It's such a small, tiny universe that if you don't get onto that track, it doesn't mean shit. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to tell you. Exactly. There are whole towns of gazillion dollar people that have never even heard of it. So while it's wonderful, and again, this isn't anti-VC, this is more like, let's not lose our head, right? Yep. This is more, hey, if you don't raise VC and there's a probability, it's a 99% chance that you won't, who cares? Who cares? 
right? Exactly. It's great. And I've done it. I've raised for my last three companies and there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not anti-VC, but I've also built companies that didn't raise VC and they did just fine. We're sitting at one of them right now, right? There are so many ways to get to this outcome. And what I'm fearful of, because I... Because I see this on a regular basis. I see folks saying, I've got to raise venture. Or I, you know, I, I've, I've got to raise money. And, and I get it. You don't have money. You need money. You feel you want money. Makes total sense. It does. Right? Bunch of stuff yeah. you want to do. Bunch of stuff you can't do. Totally get it. I get the allure. I went through it. However, where I get anxious is when startups start saying, oh, they raised money. They must be worth something. And I didn't. <laughs> I must not. And that's what pisses me off. I'm like, no, that's not the case. You're, you're golden, right? Just don't worry about that, you know? That's not real money. That's speculative cash that you have to turn into something else for that to ever be worth anything to you or the people who gave it to you. And the likelihood is it'll be worth more to them than you at the end, right? If you do all the things that you're supposed to. There's a moment in time. Right. So here, yeah. here's how it starts, right? This is the timing is great for what we're about to say because this literally just happened. Right. A couple of years ago, everybody and their brother, it seemed like, was getting funded. But I just gave you the numbers, right? It ain't that many people. They just make great headlines. Everybody that got funded got funded. Everybody that you saw got funded got funded. But there were a whole yeah, bunch it, of other things happening that had nothing to do with them, right? And it's not that those were the successful ones or not. It's not that binary. Those were just the people that got funded. So yeah, everybody that you saw get funded got funded. So what happened though is you saw a company, again, let's say you're the bootstrap counterpart and you saw a company raise $10 million. Now at that very moment, if you were to say what's worth more, Ryan and Will just hanging out in their basement building a company or the company that just raised $10 million. The company just raised $10 million, right? Because they actually have $10 million to work with, right? But the problem is we always look at that moment in time. We hear about the big funding route, but we never really hear about what happens after that in many cases right? We hear they, they raised another round. Oh my God, they're taking off. They're so successful. No, they're not. They're not. They've successfully <laughs> raised money. Yep. You have to build a successful company to go along with that. And that's the part of the story you don't hear about. You know why? Because nobody writes press releases about how they can't find funding. Right? Right. Like You don't hear about that part of the story. Those 400 companies that I just mentioned at the top of the show who haven't raised money in two years, how many press releases do you think they're sending about that? Uh, very, very few. They're desperately writing, but they're desperately writing outreach letters to investors looking for the next funding <laughs> round. They're not talking about it in the press. But that's my point. So from the outside, we don't see the full story. From the outside, all we see is the best of highlight reels. We see their best of moments, right? Like all of social media. We don't actually see what happens to these companies. Whereas Ryan, you and I sit around all day long and we actually talk to all of these founders. We have very hard candid conversations about what happens after you get that money. And I got to tell you, 90% of the time, it's not a positive story. You see it from the outside being, oh my God, it must be amazing. You see it from the inside. And I think we, you know, we've talked about this in other episodes. From the inside, if you talk to those founders who to their credit are incredibly honest about this stuff, they'll tell you it's the biggest liability in the world. They'll tell you, I just raised $100 million. That sounds cool to you from the outside. But guess what? Unless I sell for more than X, I actually won't get anything. My stock is worth zero until I hit a, a certain hurdle. And that hurdle gets really big as the funding rounds go up, right? That bar keeps Insane. moving further and further. I think people forget that success gets redefined every time we take on more funding, right? It's not like, oh, we'll just keep fundraising until we win. No, you keep taking on funding 
aiming for the thing that's going to get you to the wind, but that wind keeps moving further and further off onto the horizon the more capital you take on just by the necessity of how return on investment works. There's no way around it. Right, right. And so what ends up happening is, again, we only see the first part of the story. You know a perfect analogy to this? Going to a wedding. They're the happiest couple in the world, right? They're up there, wedded bliss, pageantry, happiest couple in the world, right? No one gets divorced to their wedding day, right? So the wedding day doesn't mean shit. What happens is, you know, once all the pixie dust wears off, then yep. you see what it's they actually it like to build a relationship. And by the way, it's very hard. Then you see what it's like to build a company. And by the way, it's very hard. And it gets compounded. Because when we've raised money, like we said, our hurdle to exit to make any money goes up exponentially. For those that are listening and just aren't exactly sure what I'm saying or what Ryan and I are saying, what that means essentially is if we raise $100 million, in most cases, if we go to sell the company, we first have to pay back the $100 million and then whatever's left over, we get our percentage of. So if we sell for $90 million, we get $0. A lot of people don't understand that. They're like, oh my God, they raised a billion dollars. Like, you know how hard it is to sell something for over a billion dollars? You know how few companies do that? You know, this the statistic probability that you're going to have an exit over a billion dollars is like 0. 0.0000. Like once you get over the euphoria of having raised a billion... Getting out into lottery odds. You quickly get into the depression of having raised a billion dollars. <laughs> That's it. And so comparatively to a bootstrap startup, which has no hurdle rate right. and has no investors, anything we sell for matters. If we sell for a million dollars, it's meaningful. Like we can have any exit scenario. There's almost no possible downside scenario. Yeah, we had spent an entire episode talking about that. And it was such it was such a good episode. And it's such a valid point is that the minute you take on funding, it just changes your optionality completely. You go from having this huge variety of options to IPO or sell, right? These are your only two options that are going to get you anywhere that will have any meaningful outcome for you or the people who've put in money. And you know, we're you and I are generally speaking focused on the founder outcomes. VC right. will get what they get. That's their business. They'll figure it out. You and I care about what happens to the founder in these situations and the outcomes are not awesome, right? Go back to that 400. Those 400 that are milling about somewhere in a valley looking for grass to feed those 400 unicorns with there is very little that they can do right now that will have a positive outcome that doesn't require some Herculean effort to get additional funding and have something big happen. They can't just hang out in that no man's land where there's no big momentum, there's no upward lift, there's no chance for some major liquid event because they can't just sit back and say, well, look, we'll just turn this into a profitable company now, but we'll hang out kind of at the valuation where we raised at last and everybody will be happy. Nope, doesn't work that way. VC doesn't allow for that. They have a closed window in which they have to return those funds to their partners. And that dictates movement, momentum, and liquidity, right? Can't happen any other way. Let's build on that. I think I don't want to jump off that point because it's really important. Ryan, if you and I get something started and we get to a point where the business gets to $5 million in revenue and it's throwing off a million five in profit, we are the happiest two guys in the world, most likely, right? Like that was amazing. Same scenario, but we raised money. It's generally a total failure because at that point, no one's going to want to invest in it because the upside is gone, right? We can't tell the story that it's going to be a billion dollars overnight. And no one can actually use that profit for any meaningful purpose. Again, a lot of people don't understand how this works. They just assume if we just become a profitable company, Ryan and I just like take a huge paychecks and everybody like gets a little bit of theirs. 
That's not how this works. Now, there are situations on private investors, like angel investors, individual investors, where a bunch of people put money into a restaurant and the restaurant distributes profit. That actually does happen, yeah. right? They're investing for an internal rate of return at that point, right? That's what they're looking for. Totally. But that's generally not the business that we're in. In our business, and I'm saying this for a lot of the folks that have never been through this before, just so they can understand it. In our business, when we raise from professional investors, angel investors from venture capital, et cetera, particularly venture capital, and that's what we're talking about here, when we raise from venture capital, we can't do distributions. Venture capital firms don't work that way. I've been in a company where, where I've gotten to the point where we're profitable and the VCs are like, don't send us a check. We can't do anything with it. No, reinvest that, grow so we can IPO or sell, right? That's it. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to hold, hold the equity. We want to get out of it. That's the whole thing. That's why this works the way it does. So we could actually build, by any other measure, a fairly successful company. And I'll go back to all my neighbors here, right? I'm in Columbus, Ohio. All my neighbors here built just successful companies. They yep. sold stuff for more than it cost them to make it. And they just made money, right? Not complicated. And they didn't have to worry about a timeline to exit. They didn't have to worry about a hurdle rate where they, they didn't sell for enough. They didn't even have to worry about selling. They didn't even have to worry about it. Didn't even occur it's to just them. Just kicking off cash year after year. I'll keep it. Right. That's it. This, this is the thing. Not only does it raise the bar for what success looks like when you take on funding, it right. changes the vector in which you have to go. It basically becomes one point, right? Yes. Where where you had this unlimited array of options before, and the you know the size at which you got to didn't matter nearly as much. Of course, you want to be, you know, big enough that you're generating, you know, meaningful amount of profit or cash for, for yourself and employees and other stakeholders. But the minute you're in VC, you now have a massive, massive lift, a hurdle that you have to get over. And it's in a single direction, right? There aren't a whole bunch of options available to you. So it's a massive outcome that can only be achieved one way. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? Not really. Everybody's like, well, if we can grow this thing and sell it in five to 10 years, like, why wouldn't I want to do that? Like, why would I want it to take longer? That if was so big, you should have said it louder, Will. Like, it's a really <laughs> big if. No, but think about it. Like, if it were that easy, we'd all just do it, right? Exactly. <laughs> just yep. saying that you want to sell it sooner, we're going to raise money so we can sell sooner, doesn't make it so, right? Yeah. No, it, the the one I hear all the time, I'm sure you get this all the time as well. It's, look, I'm, I'm happy to take a much smaller piece of a much much bigger pie. I'm not greedy. Well, then you should absolutely not raise venture funding, right? You should just take a much smaller pie because it's more likely that you'll get that exactly. and you'll actually enjoy the pie. Cool. Right. Huh? And okay, let's, let's build on that though. That's literally what we're talking about when we're talking about the value creation or am I more valuable than something else? Think about it this way. If we have unlimited outcomes in a bootstrap startup, we can be even a little bit profitable and things are, are good. We can sell for literally any amount and things are good. Doesn't that make us more valuable than something that has a very tiny window of an outcome that might be huge, but statistically probably won't be anything? Depends on who we're trying to create value for, right? Which leads us to who we're trying to create value for, right? The part that everybody's missing when they say, are the bootstraps worth more than the VCs? And we do have these conversations, right? And, and, and founders have them with themselves. It, it is an open topic. The question comes back to more valuable to whom? Okay, so here's the VCs version. Uh, they'll talk about startups.com. And, and we are a, a profitable business. We've been around for 11 years. We've never raised money. We're, we're just a company that sells stuff for, for less than, than we pay for it. Wild idea, right? VCs might look at our business and say, oh, that's a lifestyle business, right? As if a business that has customers that pay you that's profitable is like some turnoff. 
Yeah. And what yeah. they're saying is, in all fairness, I mean, I like to pick out investors, but but what they're saying is, it's not good for me, exactly. the investor. Exactly. Not it's not good. Great for you, right? <laughs> Look, good for you, but it's not good for me. So you got to ask yourself, are we really jumping out of business in the morning to make them more money? <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> because exactly. Because I'm not. I really like the part where we make ourselves money. That sounds cool. I'll be a lifestyle business all day long. It, right. Yeah. Well, well, you know, we probably talked about this before on the podcast, but the hypocrisy in that statement is so hysterical because is there a more lifestyle business than being a VC? Is there? <laughs> is there? <laughs> let, me, hold on, let me get this straight. You're on a fixed fee income for some period of time on a business model where statistically you'll never make more money. Isn't that the definition of what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically. Business is. I'm like, huh, that's, that's kind of funny. Yeah, next time I hear a VC say that, I'm just going to high five them. Be like, yeah, yeah, it's all of us. Welcome We're to here together. Yeah. But again, but let's go back to valuable to whom? Valuable to whom? Is my bootstrap business not worth as much as this other business? Okay, let's see. All I care about, I'm just going to be super selfish for a minute. All I care about is my outcome, okay? What I mean is we're working on this business, right? And, and, and by my, I'm, I'm including you, Ryan. I'm saying like, all I care about is how this affects us. Exactly. There's no externalities. Yep. In other words, we don't wake up in the morning and think, oh man, we really got to do another podcast. Otherwise, our investors are going to be pissed, right? That's not valuable to me. <laughs> having to kowtow to them, not valuable to me. Exit scenarios, right? If we just have a good year this year, Ryan, you and I just make more money. Exactly. Not complicated. Yep. We're not trying to feed it through a cap table. We're not trying to like figure all these things out. How will this impact our next round? We don't care. There isn't one. Yeah. yeah who cares? And guys, I want to be clear. Like, we're like smart enough guys, but we're not like some geniuses that crack the Da Vinci code for how to do this. We're just doing what 99% of other businesses do. Right. That's that's the, the hilarity in this is in the startup space, we've kind of created this bizarre fantasy that this one tiny sliver of pathway companies has defined what should be the ultimate path for everyone. When there's exponentially more companies and more lifestyles that have been affected by not doing that. And, and that just blows my mind. You know what I mean? You know, something that's really funny about everything we talk about here is that none of it is new. Everything you're dealing with right now has been done a thousand times before you, which means the answer already exists. You may just not know it, but that's okay. That's kind of what we're here to do. We talk about this stuff on the show, but we actually solve these problems all day long at groups.startups.com. So if any of this sounds familiar, stop guessing about what to do. Let us just give you the answers to the test and be done with it. Yeah, for sure, man. It's so funny to me. Again, back to the, the analogy here around the relative value, rather, right? So when we think about, like, what is this worth and who is it worth, to, who, who are we creating value for, right? Even if we just take those relative outcomes, right? How many times have you and I seen a founder take on funding, grow a business, and actually achieve everything they wanted to achieve, meaning they got to IPO or they got to an exit? Let's use an exit, rather, because there's, there's far more of those than there are IPOs. It gets to a reasonable exit, right? Let's say they, they raised... 30 or 40 million over time, maybe they sold for $100 million, and they walk away with four or $5 million because they're so squashed down in the cap table at that point, right? As opposed to, I don't know, building a $10 million business with 50% EBITDA, right? Where they were pocketing the same amount every single year. We've talked about this before, right? We know founders who essentially exit every year because of the way they're structured, right? It's so important not to get tied up in setting success as like, 
you know, it's, it's as if everything, we only look at this as the NBA, right? If you're not playing in the NBA, then you haven't succeeded. There are a lot of other leagues in startup land, right? VC is not the only place to play. And often the outcomes are not what they look like at the end, right? You hear these companies that sell, you know, IPO for a billion dollars, sell for 1.5. What actually happened to the founders at the end, right? Where was that value created and for whom? And this becomes the problem. How many stories do we have of people who, by the time they got to where they needed to be to achieve, you know, to, to clear that hurdle and to create the outcome that was required by the rules of the game that they decided to play, meaning VC in this case, that didn't get what they actually wanted or could have had a better outcome had they bootstrapped. The thing that I find so ironic about this, every bootstrap company that I talk to tells me that they've decided to bootstrap in the most apologetic way yeah, ever, yeah, right? yeah. Like, what is that? I'm so tired of hearing that. I'm like, don't you don't have to apologize to me for doing what pretty much every business does and will likely be a better choice for you. You do not need to apologize for that, unless you're Canadian because you're just going to apologize for everything. Oh, which is cool. I get it. It's okay. It's charming. Let me just throw some examples. I just really want to reinforce this picture of whole industries that exist that you use and give lots of money to, and you don't even realize that there's been no case of a venture funding yeah. ever. Okay. Yeah. How about this? All of professional services, every law firm, every freaking investment bank, ironically, every ad agency, <laughs> every, you know, like, like yep. you know, you name it, right? N never seen venture capital. Okay. And yet they seem to be doing okay, right? Every hospital never saw venture capital, right? Seem to be doing okay. Right? The list goes on forever. Like, like most categories, never seen venture capital. And again, we get so wildly kind of distraught that we're not pursuing this one path or we're not raising for, you know, from investors, et cetera. And I just got to remind you that it's okay. <laughs> There's so many ways to get this done. And maybe the way that you've been pursuing or you're, you know, you're so locked into is actually a bad idea. Have you thought about that part where you're actually going to set yourself down a path that is not your best outcome? You mentioned something a moment ago, Ryan, I just want to go back to it where you said uh, somebody goes through IPO and they, they wind up with 5 million bucks, okay? And I'm going to like take that a, a step further and say, maybe that person is like the eighth member of the team. You know what I'm saying? Like they actually did well, like the CEO made a gazillion dollars, but you usually don't hear about the rest of the team, right? What I would say is the amount of risk, by risk, I mean lack of probability of going down that path that they had to endure to make that money. We could have looked at what you and I built like, Four years in, we're in year 11, but four years in is worth way more than $5 million to yeah. us, Yep. right? And that was with no money raised. And again, it's not like we had some meteoric rise. We we're just like building a business. Like it, it, it wasn't super complicated. What people don't realize is that end game, because I, I love the way you put it out, of making $5 million. Like, dude, if you want to make $5 million, you know how many easier ways there is to do that that doesn't <laughs> yeah. account for that amount of risk? Take a company to IPO. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But then taking a company to IPO. So I'm a big fan of the bootstrap startup. I'm a big fan of their optionality, mostly optionality, right? I'm a big fan of all the people they don't have to deal with along the way. I was talking to somebody on Twitter about this yesterday. And, uh, and somebody was talking about how distracting it is to raise money. And I said, you know, in our first few years at startups.com where we didn't raise money, instead, we spent all of our time building product and getting customers, right? So we didn't have to raise money. And I was like, having raised money for my previous startups, that's all I was thinking about. And incidentally, they didn't do nearly as well because I was so distracted with the wrong thing, you know, the externality. Yeah. 
No, control and ownership is, is a huge piece of it, right? There's some other things that I think just come inherently along with bootstrapping. Creativity, resourcefulness, right? The minute you have these massive war chests, you start to make decisions in a very different way. And one of the most common ones that I see, uh, particularly on the, on the marketing side, is now we've got the money. Let's do what our competitors are doing, right? A lot of the really successful businesses that I know did not beat their competition by doing the same thing their competitors did. They beat them by doing something that their competitors weren't doing. So by nature of just having the money to now copy our competitors, we're setting ourselves up for just stonewalling at some point where we're going to hit a plateau. We're going to just become our competitor, right? That wasn't right. the idea here, right? There was something that we set out to do that was different than they were. And now we're saying, well, now we can just copy them, right? So I don't want to say that it will make a founder lazy, that, that's taking it too far. But I think that there are times where funding makes certain decisions that should be difficult too easy because we have money we can just throw at the problem now instead of throwing thinking, resourcefulness, a little bit of grind, a little bit of intuition, right? Like working through the problems instead of just paying to leap over them because we can jump over those problems in the short term. They tend to come up and bite us in the ass shortly thereafter. Yeah, I agree. And, and also this whole time as we're making those decisions, we're wildly distracted. I think this is kind of the case for everything we're talking about today. We're wildly distracted about a metric of our value to someone else. That's the broken part of this whole thing. That, that's the part everyone's missing. We are so distracted. The moment we say, I want my startup to be valuable to someone other than me, as the founder, as the team, et cetera, then we have lost. And you know, something I forgot to mention at the top of the episode today was the fact that we have a live studio audience today and that we, <laughs> normally I do that at the beginning. Instead, I'm going to surprise, we've got some friends here. Uh, we got some friends here. I have not been monitoring the chat. I'll tell you what, I love this episode because I get really fired up about this. Like the whole everybody comparing themselves to an outcome that is usually terrible for the people going through it. It'd be like being really, really impressed and disrupted by people going to jail. It's like, wait, why are you? <laughs> they're, they're not excited about that. I don't know why you'd want to do that. Yeah. yeah. Sophia, Gary, you guys still with us? I see you, Sophia. Hey, Sophia, what'd you think? I thought it was awesome. I was typing a question, but I was trying to figure out how to articulate it. <laughs> it. Well, if you didn't notice, Will and I don't worry about that while we're podcasting. So just yeah, throw it know, out. Right? What resonated, Sophia? I was going to ask in my particular case, how would you recommend going about bootstrapping if you have a business that you don't think it's very hard to like on a single unit start generating profit or generate revenue early on? So like a social media or an unconventional like hard tech, something in that space. What's the business? Just to give you a little more context so I can give you a better answer. Yeah. So when I'm building, it's like a social map for travelers. And so is it the case that it won't make money until you hit some level of scale kind of thing? Yeah. Right. Really what you're talking about is time, right? Like how can you afford to operate for some period of time until it hits some level of scale? That's like the first, Sophie, like the first couple years is really what it all comes down to. Like, is there some way to survive those first couple of years? Now, look, maybe you raise a small amount of money. I'm not even recommending raising money, but I'm saying even if you raise a small amount of money, you could do it with folks who aren't like, hey, I need a massive exit, right? And you could just, just enough to get you along uh, to buy you time. I've got a good friend of mine, and this is this mostly public information, that runs a company, or I think he's gone now, ran a company called Stack Media out of LA. And uh, Josh raised, and, and Ryan, you know, uh, Josh raised 800000 I think. It's on Crunchbase. When he was first getting launched, and he never needed money again. And he sold the company for like, you know, under $100 million. But all it needed was those first couple of years to kind of get by. So Sophia, a lot of it isn't necessarily, do I need gobs of capital for a long time? 
it's like, how do I keep the lights on now? What a lot of people do is they look for some other way to generate income. Do you know for the first few years when we were doing startups.com, we were still building all of our software and stuff. We did consulting. We we're basically a consulting company, right? It worked well. Like we made a lot of money. Service proxy can go a long way in buying you that early runway while you figure product and product market fit out. And so here's here's the other beauty of that. And this is where this gets a little counterintuitive. The minute you do take on funding, you no longer have a luxury that you have now, which is, is the thing that we'll just talked about, which is time, right? The minute you take on funding, there's now a runway because you're going to start to make decisions. You're going to start to build team. You're going to start to turn on expenses and overheads and things are going to start to happen that become quite difficult to turn off, right? There's probably some analogy here around like a small boat that stays close to shore, you know, powered by the wind, kind of just keep going or just float around. And then there's the massive aircraft carrier that we've got half a tank of gas on and we have to get to the other side of the body of water or we're just dead, right? We're just done, right? And there are some hysterical examples of this. Well, what was the, it was like a short form video company, Quibi, Quibi, 1.75 billion in funds raised in April of 2020. And by December of 2020, they shuttered the thing, right? Because they didn't get to where they needed to be. That was a massive flop. And it, had they given themselves time and had they not tried to do what they did in the way that they did, right? Because you could argue there's some pretty successful short form video content platforms right now that are doing quite well that didn't raise $1.75 billion <laughs> because who does, right? Very few companies will ever raise that much money. And so think about that as you're considering what it is, all of the things that you have to solve for. One of them is just understanding, right? And it's just being in the market long enough. This is something Will and I talk about a lot. Being in the market long enough to really understand where you fit, what your customers really need, and the problems that they face that you are best suited to solve for them, right? If we accelerate that, it can get really dicey in terms of being around long enough to figure that out. Let me build on that for a second, because it's such a great point. When we were first getting started, like 11 years ago, crazy to think, uh, our, our primary thing was helping people get funded, right? So in, and we were building an equity crowdfunding platform called fundable.com, which we still have as part of that. At the time, that was going to be like our, not our primary business, but kind of like, you know, where we thought was we were going to have huge growth opportunities. So Sophia, here's what's kind of interesting. The longer you can stick around, however you stick around, we did it by consulting because equity crowdfunding kind of never happened. We did it by consulting. It also gives you an opportunity to go, oh, wait a minute, there's like a better place for me to monetize or there's a better way to take the product. But you kind of have to be around for a minute, right? In order to be able to do that. We wouldn't be where we were today if we had staked everything on our first idea and tried to make all of our money from our first idea. And the only reason I know that for sure is because 30 other companies did the same thing we did and none yep. of them are around anymore. Nobody. Um, Nobody. Sophia, do you think there's a way to do like a bit of a hybrid where you can keep cash flow coming in while you develop the business? Yeah, definitely. I think there's some kind of like concierge or itinerary marketplace type of thing totally. that would work. She may or may not have been on a call where somebody discussed some ideas around a service proxy with her last week. I, I don't know. That, that may have happened. I vaguely remember that as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gary. Yeah. Hey. You had some thoughts. What, what, what are you thinking? You know, we're a bootstrap startup, if you will. Um, I've been running a recruiting services business for a period of time, or quite a long time. Primarily RPO type model, uh, predominantly for very complex software companies. 
So, you know, right now we're building a tool that I want to increase efficiency for our business, but it'll also give us a differentiator in the marketplace. And then we've already kind of got mapped out, you know, what are some of the new capabilities we'll do. The only reason why I'd ever want to raise money is just to go a little bit faster, but I already know some partners who who made it it'd probably be not through VCs and the rest because it'll be a non-traditional exit. It's all about if we can generate revenue, we can increase our profits as a result of that. The most likely buyer exit is an organization. There are plenty of um, um, equity firms that own a large number of recruiting or HR consulting related kinds of things. So if this tool is able to significantly increase our efficiency and give us a differentiator in the marketplace, somebody could but deposit, you know, could buy us and deploy that to their 20, 50, 75 other related firms just like ours. So, you know, it makes it a little bit easier because we don't have to develop a, a software product that's going to sell as a product. It's always a service. And then, you know, plenty of other people could pick that up and take it to a level that I just can't grow my business that big. Crazy, right, Gary. Right. It sounds like you're building a business and that you want to have revenue. And it's, it's this is heresy. Yeah, right. Now's a good time to do it, too, because since the market with regard to, you know, it's not the best time to be in the recruiting business, but that's OK. I mean, I've ridden this roller coaster a lot of time. So since our day-to-day -day production work is less, it enables me to spend some of the time on the quality work that has to be done with regard to my product manager, my product team, and all those kinds of things. And we got a small pile of cash that's going like this. <laughs> that's usually the way, yeah. Yeah, right. So we'll probably burn about 50% of that cash to get to our MVP. We're a couple of months away from the MVP from the perspective of the software piece. And then that'll start generating again, you know, Mark will pick up, it gives us a differentiator as things pick up and it should generate if things go well, additional revenue and a profitability so that we can afford to build a lot of those features and stuff ourselves. Only problem is the timeline based upon historical revenues that we can generate. It'll take us three or four years to produce the product that I really want to produce. So to accelerate it into a more reasonable timeline, we'll probably need to raise you know, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars. Not. Oh, that's not bad. No, very reasonable. And that's the thing. Like when we're thinking about accelerating, we all want to accelerate. There's no version where we we don't don't wish we had more resources and you know uh, something we could get to faster. Guys, we're eleven years into the business, and there's like a hundred things we still want to accelerate. Right? That never goes away. There's no version where you ever solve that. What you have to start thinking about is, yeah, I want to accelerate it, but at what cost? One of the benefits that we had when we were building this business is we had spent 20 years building other businesses before it. So we had some opportunities to start to compare and contrast what worked in the past and what we don't want to do again. And one of the things that we learned was sometimes things taking a little bit longer ain't that bad. Sometimes things taking a little bit longer prevent you from making, when I say sometimes, I'm saying a lot of times, prevent you from making rash, dumb decisions that if you had a, a whole bullet of cash, you would have made. Hiring that one person that had you give them another month of contracting, there's no way you would have hired them, right? Or making that, that marketing decision or that product decision that was so genius because everyone's talking about AI. And then you had to wait a year and it turned out no one was talking about AI, right? Like, or crypto brief for this, you know, you name it, right? Sometimes being patient, and Ryan and I have spent a lot of time talking about this, sometimes being patient and being forced to be patient, because none of us are patient, sometimes being patient is an incredible asset. It's served us well countless times. So again, I don't always hate it. It ain't all bad is what I'm saying. What do you think, Ryan? 100%, right? I think there's, you know, acceleration 
can be great. I think there's a difference to me between like wholesale acceleration, particularly the type that happens when we raise capital and wanting things to go faster, right? We're, we, of course we want things to go faster. We want things to happen when we want them to happen. It rarely do. The other thing I would argue is that it also doesn't necessarily just happen because we, we raise capital. The big things that I see happen on, on the back end of a capital raise is we start to take really short term focus on things. Well, to your point, like we start to get really distracted by stuff. All of a sudden, Gary, you start to just build software right? And you take yourself away from your core business. Now you've got money to build software. So we're just going to build software. And we let the other, the service component of our business go. Revenue starts to dry up. Maybe the software doesn't catch in the way we wanted it to. Now we've accelerated something that isn't going to pan out. We've lost the long-term focus on our business. And this is one of the best things about being bootstrapped is that whatever that North Star you set from day one is can remain there. The minute you take on funding, somebody else is going to start to tell you what the hell your North Star is. No thanks, right? This becomes really problematic. So I think that shift from long-term ability to stay focused on mission and vision is really important over the long-term. And it's, it's something hard to spot though, right? You think that like, if I can just make this move faster, I'll get to that long-term vision sooner. It just so often skews that perspective and we end up going in a different direction and not necessarily a positive one. You bet. One other quick thing comes to mind, which is as you get latter in your career, there's actually the real reality of how much long, you know, how much longer you even feel like doing it. Right. So we're also building it such that I'm increasingly less, you know, getting myself out of the core so that by the, the core business so that in five to seven years, it won't be as dependent upon me. Both of you are a decade younger than I am. So there comes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wouldn't let those Zoom filters uh, fool you. Yeah, right. I say, Will, are we still decades younger than anyone? Is that still possible? <laughs> you no, might no, be no. decades younger than me, or at least a decade and a half. So I'm just saying the reality of that starts to come into play too when you start to talk about accelerating things. So 11 years from now, yeah, I'm really not doing, I'm not working that hard 11 years from now. I'm just, <laughs> just saying. I, I hear that. I hear that. And then you're right. That is a real timeline. Uh, you know, th there are certain things that, hey, we don't have more time to do it. From, from our standpoint, the way we look at our business, our need, our customer need, people want to start businesses is perennial and ain't going away, right? There'll be a hundred different ways that, that we uh, address that need over the years as technology changes, et cetera. But the need will always be the same. So we can kind of look at the North Star, Gary, and we can say, if it takes us two years or 20 years or 50 years, kind of doesn't matter because it's all we want to do anyway. That's very unique to our situation. If you're looking at it differently, like, hey, man, I want to retire. This is kind of like my last hurrah and I got a limited window, different criteria. But at the same time, you know, what we can do is just make it so the depend uh, the company independent upon me. And even if we got the round of funding, if they were interested in a lifestyle business and income type of thing, we could turn it into an ESOP someday. I mean, there's all kinds of things we could do where I get to exit, but the company doesn't necessarily exit. It just has a lot to do with who's putting in money and for what reason are they putting in in that money, right? And so we could we may be able to find a balance between the two. I just recently joined startups. So I'm looking forward to being a member of the community, getting to know some people who have done this before, who can give me some better advice as to, you know, how much do we accelerate? How do we not? And, you know, kind of work yeah, out some yeah. of the details that, you know, sitting in this, you know, little room by myself, it's a little long. <laughs> You're no That's longer in that for. room by yourself. We're all in there with you in spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to put a bow on all of this, because I, I want to circle back to, to something you said, and we'll kind of make this the final thing, because I know Will and I actually both have workshops we got to go run, which will be fun. But Gary, to the point that you just made around having that optionality to for you to step away and to have your own exit from the business in one way, shape, or, or another, right? 
That's not possible, right? So we go back to those discussions around what happens when you take on VC funding. That wouldn't be possible under venture funding, right? So the fact that you're bootstrapped leaves that open to you as an option and perhaps one of the better options you have at this point. So imagine taking that off the table and just saying, nope, you can't do that anymore. All of a sudden now you have, this goes back to that core point. Now you have to accelerate. You have to move faster. You have to get bigger because that's the only way that you're going to achieve the outcome you want with your business, even though that's not the outcome you necessarily needed or want. Yeah, we're thinking about already that we could get to in the five-year timeline or something, the ability to kind of graduate, which is our capabilities get acquired into a much larger organization that does something similar. You know, I can play out a couple of year subject matter expert, you know, kind of role or what have you, but somebody else can take this thing that I've got and, you know, I'm not the guy, even if even if the time was earlier, I'm not the guy to turn this into 10x beyond what I want to do. I mean, that's not who I am, you know, building a 20 or 30 person company that's $10 million in revenue. Yeah, that's me. But somebody else that wants to take it to a couple of hundred million dollars, I'm not even interested, right? But somebody else could, somebody else could take it beyond that. And, you know, and I fade out. Right. That's what, that's where private equity shows up and they kick you out. Ryan and I have already planned for our own ousting. We both had uh, 11-year-old daughters that are about 10 times smarter than we are. Huh? Huh? So we're just waiting for them to come of age and, and run this company properly. <laughs> so, yeah. so See, it is a couple of decades. I've got a 30-year-old daughter. So there we are, right? Yeah, yeah, we're trying. We're trying. Hey, on that note, we got to go. We love you guys. We appreciate you spending the, the time with us. And we'll see you online. Uh, Gary, welcome. Sophia, I know you're already talking to Ryan. We are here to help you guys. Uh, everybody listening, we're here to help. Find us online, start startups.com and let's get the conversation going. Take care, guys. So in addition to all the stuff related to founder groups, you've also got full access to everything on startups.com. That includes all of our education tracks, which will be funding, customer acquisition, even how to manage your monthly financers. There's so much stuff in there. All of our software, including BizPlan for putting together detailed business plans and financials, LaunchRock for attracting early customers, and of course, Fundable for attracting investment capital. When you log into the startups.com site, you'll find all of these resources available.